Welcome, everyone, once again to the Toward Wholeness podcast. My name is Richard Dahlstrom, and I'm privileged to have with me today also my co-host, Abby Odio, and a very special guest, Gail Boss. I came into contact with Gail's new book entitled All Creation Waits, or perhaps it's not actually a new book because it's in its sixth or seventh printing, but it's a book about Advent. And as we are in Advent season at the time of this recording, I wanted to uh, familiarize all of you with the content because the, the title itself speaks to such a very poignant and important topic at this particular time, Advent 2020, all creation waits. And there's a theme within the book, a beautiful theme within the book of waiting and learning to wait by reading from what I call God's first book, the book of creation, as we look at how animals in the Northern hemisphere move into winter, their life changes dramatically. Most of us love kind of a static life. We want today to be pretty much the same as yesterday and tomorrow to be pretty much the same as today. But the reality is, according to Ecclesiastes chapter three, we live in a world of seasons and there's a time for everything. And when we are in times not of our choosing, we're often waiting, waiting for something to change. And all of us in December of 2020 are waiting. We're waiting for a vaccine. We're waiting for economic solutions. We're waiting for decisions about what to do over the holidays. We may be waiting as someone we know faces the virus. So there's a lot of waiting in our world right now. And I can't recommend highly enough the book, All Creation Waits, as a resource, particularly in Advent 2020. So Gail, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Gail, the book is entitled All Creation Waits, and there is a strong, strong focus on creation and the animal kingdom in the book, which captured my attention from the outset. Can you tell us a little bit about the advent of the book? Like, how did this come about, your desire to write about learning lessons for Advent from the creation of God's animal kingdom? Hmm. Well, it's a story that goes all the way back to 1985. I was doing research for a piece on the history of Christian liturgy, and I learned that the history of the Advent liturgy goes all the way back to the fourth century church. It was initiated by the church fathers back in the fourth century because they noticed how anxious their people were this time of year. Now, these were agricultural people in the fourth century in the Northern Hemisphere who were dependent on the earth in a way that we really can't imagine. If you didn't grow it, you didn't eat it. And if you didn't grow enough of it, you weren't eating past February. And even if you grew enough of it and you ate through this year, what if there was no growing season next year? So as they watched the light fade and the cold creep in, it triggered in them this visceral, primal fear that the earth was dying, which meant for them the possible death of them. And so at the same time that they were eating in the fall the harvest and feasting, they were also growing ever more fearful that next year the sun would not return from its orbit. Well, the church fathers noticed this, and so they initiated this season before Christmas, before the return of the sun at the solstice that they called Advent 
the coming. And with this liturgy and the practices of Advent, the church fathers spoke directly into that fear. They said, yes, light and life are going away. But each time that light and life goes away, there is one who comes to us. And that one always comes bringing a new beginning. And they encouraged people in Advent to do exactly what the earth is doing, to fast, to pray, to give away things, to, to give alms, and imitate what the earth was doing in order to more completely enter the rhythms of the earth and then learn its great promise when the sun returned that it does indeed bring a new beginning, that this stripping away is preparation for a new beginning. Well, I was so taken with this history because it confirmed in me this general depression I had every year in December and into January that I couldn't reconcile with a culture that kept singing, it's the most wonderful time. And I was thinking, no, 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 it is not wonderful. It's dark and it's cold and I feel terrible. But the <laughs> history of Advent said to me, oh no, you are sane. You are sane enough to sense the cycles and the rhythms of the earth of which you are made. You are earth too. And here are the practices of the church that can help you enter this season and find in it a healthy soul. So my husband and I, I was young and newly married at that time, we began keeping not a countdown to Christmas. We began keeping a true Advent according to the practices of the old church. We put up no Christmas decorations, no lights, sang no Christmas carols. We only had an Advent wreath, and each night we would light it, and we would sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And then on Christmas Eve, when that one did come to us, then we burst out all the decorations and had a big party. But for the days of Advent, we really did what creation does. We waited in the dark. Well, all that worked very well until we had a child. And this little boy at four years old would come home and say, why is Evan's house so Christmassy and ours is dark and quiet? And I thought, okay, we have got to find a more engaging way to involve this little one in the secrets of Advent. I thought, okay, I'll make an Advent calendar. This is 1995 by this point. Well, I was wow. going to go, I thought I would go buy an Advent calendar. Well, the only ones I could find in bookstores were ones with either little pictures of candy canes and Christmas trees or pictures of the nativity, all of which are fine. But those are pictures of Christmas, not Advent. I wanted my little boy, when he opened each of those doors, to know that Advent is about darkness and fear and hope and loss and hope. So I thought I have no choice but to make my own Advent calendar. And I made one and found myself putting behind the doors pictures of animals. First of all, my little boy loved pictures of animals. He loved animals like almost every child I've ever met. And then second of all, my best friend and his godmother had sent me just days before I was about to make it her meditation on the painted turtle and how the painted turtle in Advent is a symbol of how a healthy soul might respond when it's faced with a dark and threatening time. So the painted turtle became the first animal on the advent calendar I made. And then there was a bear and a loon, a snake, 
animal, more animals followed on my advent calendar. Well, you might think then that a book to accompany the calendar would be a natural for a writer, but no, it took me 17 years to think of that. I was 17 years later walking beside a pond one December afternoon, and I saw a muskrat. And I thought, oh dear, what is he going to eat? I thought he hibernated. I went home and did a quick Google search to find out how indeed the muskrat survives the winter. And that's what cued me to think, maybe with the animals on my advent calendar, plus a few more like the muskrat, I could write a book of reflections, not just a calendar. I could write a book of reflections on how these animals survive when the world around them becomes very threatening, dark and cold, and how they could be symbols for us or metaphors for what we might need to do to stay healthy when faced with the dark and cold of any kind. And that's what I did. I really thought that I had written a book for adults, but I have found that almost everyone who writes to me says that they share it with their children as well. Uh, and my uh, wife is reading this with me, and then we're reading it also to our grown children and our grandchildren who are fascinated by it. I wanted to follow up after uh, hearing the kind of the birth of the book by asking for maybe one of your poignant observations as an example of how animals adapt, because I think one of the themes in Advent 2020 in particular that has been tossed our way is this need for adaptation to realities that we would not have chosen. What I've loved in the book is the many, many examples of adaptation. So maybe there's one that you'd like to share as an example of this this theme of adaptation that is so appropriate during Advent 2020. Yes, so true. Situations that we did not choose and that are indeed threatening like the animals face. And no, I can't share just one because, and I'll be brief, because uh, the the genius of the animal world and of the the book that the book tries to capture is that there are as many strategies as there are animals. The painted turtle goes so still. She buries herself deep in the mud and she goes so still that she seems to be dead. And there are times when we're under threat of dark and cold that we need to withdraw from our normal lives and go so still and quiet that we might even seem to ourselves to be dissolving. But that's in that radical simplicity, that quietude that will be saved. But then there's an animal like the fox squirrel that is just as active in the winter as it is in summer. But what the fox squirrel calls upon is his incredible memory to look for, to exercise that memory and remember where those hidden gems that have sustained him through the year are hidden. So we might need to exercise memory of the things and the people and the times that have sustained us in the past and draw on those memories to sustain us in a present dark time. Those are both great examples, and it really is um, kind of a perfect illustration of how each of us may, in the particular moment, need to adapt differently. I know just recently I took a little tumble skiing and injured my shoulder, 
and it, it put me in a kind of a bad mood. And the last thing I need to do is to go to a party. When I, when I'm in recovery mode, I just want to kind of be alone <laughs> and not talk to anybody. But there are other times when the very thing I need is people. And so for the human soul to learn to adapt differently in different situations, it seems that this book provides great examples of a multitude of different ways of adapting. Some animals hibernate, some don't. Some animals become so funny to me. They become kind of socialists in the winter. They share all their resources. And then they're basically capitalists in the in the summertime, hiding their nuts for their own little family. It's just so beautiful to see the variety of ways that adaptation happens. Yes, exactly right. And I think that's great news for us that if there's not one size that fits all, either for every person or for every one of the situations we face. So, uh, you know, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was whether or not the layers of civilization that we have as humans, like what's that doing to our capacity to listen to God? When when you shared the story of early Advent and people's mm-hmm. living close to the land and, and mindful of the seasons, I know now that unless it's a big news event, we don't even know the cycles of the moon, you know, uh, and we and we don't really follow the seasons because whatever season it is, it's 68 in the house and our food comes wrapped in plastic. So like, what has that done to us? And what steps would you recommend we take so that we can learn from creation the way people did centuries ago? Yeah, yeah, so true, Richard. I think we do sense it, but we're unaware of sensing it. In other words, I think we still have the primal fear of the agricultural people of the fourth century, but we paper over it or cement asphalt over it or something because our culture doesn't honor it. It insists on 24-7 productivity But you can see it in the ways that people get depressed when the light starts to fade. Here in Michigan, I know we're near, we're down to about seven and a half hours of daylight. And everybody on my street is talking about how tough it is to keep going. Of course, COVID has only amplified that. Other people, rather than getting depressed or to fight the depression, get fill their lives with distraction. They shop until they drop or eat or drink until they're sick in order to forget that this is a difficult time of the year. So I think we still know because our bodies know they're made of the earth. We can't, we can't escape that. Our bodies know and are trying like crazy to tell us that we have to honor the material of which we're made. So though it might seem counterintuitive to really face into and take in the season is the healthiest thing we can do to acknowledge the dark and the cold, to go out and stand in it. So what can we do? I think whatever scrap of the natural world you can get yourself into and look at and touch and feel and and encounter with all your senses is positively curative. And it doesn't have to be big. There's a sweet little book by a woman who was bedridden with a chronic disease. The book is called The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. 
And she found her recovery, the secret to her recovery in watching this wild snail that was in a terrarium beside her bed. That was all the more nature she could have. But it was curative for her. So I live on the edge of an ecosystem preserve maintained by a university. Boy, that's just optimal. But a city park, if you're in the middle of Seattle or elsewhere, your backyard, (laughs) anything where you can connect with a living creature that really lives its nature. Gail, I just want to say thanks for that answer. And I I feel like you've touched on something that I have certainly felt over the past eight months or nine months, I suppose, where it can feel like a lot of work. We have we have two young kids at home and just getting outside can sometimes feel like a sludge for us. Mm-hmm. But even just a walk around the block, my husband and I will look at each other and say, man, I, f- I feel lighter. <laughs> I feel um, like I'm, I can breathe a bit deeper. And so that's such a, such a profound encouragement. I want to lean more into that question because one of the things that I have so uh, loved in the the just bits of your writing that I've read from the devotional is your attention to detail and the way that you so beautifully capture a scene. I read yesterday the the first devotional, the painted turtle that you talked about and Uh, You describe this pond and, you know, the water being waist deep. And I felt like I was kind of transported into this place. And I, I do think that there is a, a spiritual discipline to simply being able to pay attention and to notice Mm -hmm. and, and to not just walk around the block, but walk around the block and hear what you hear and notice it and, and smell what you smell and name it. And, that's certainly something that I've been trying to, kind of a muscle I've been trying to build and find myself so easily distracted, even as I'm consciously kind of pursuing that. So I'm curious, how have you leaned into that discipline? How have you developed this this way of kind of encountering the world intentionally? Well, as a writer, of course, the first thing you're taught when you're learning to write is You must be concrete. Mm. Don't throw generalities at people. Give them very specific pictures because we are creatures of our senses. And if we can experience the senses even indirectly through words on a page, we are so much more apt to take it. It will make an impression on it. Press, it will press into us, make an impression on us. And I've found that to be true in my own life. Mary Oliver has a line in which she says, um, devotion may not be may not be the only kind of prayer, but it must be close. Because the sorrow whose name is doubt is thus subdued and not through the weaponry of reason. I think the attention and devotion to the natural world, not through the weaponry of reason, but devotion to its sensory gifts dispels our sorrow. Because God is in it. The epigraph to the book is truly at the heart of uh, not only the book, but my belief. Meister Eckhart, that 13th century mystic, said, every single creature is full of God and is a book about God. Every creature is a word of God, whether it's a snail or a maple tree or a blade of grass. And so we go out and we these are things God gives us to sense God's presence. So we just have to put ourselves in the presence. Mm. 
I found Gail that uh, uh, as I was reading it, uh, one of the things that was interesting to me was kind of following up on what Abby just said. You have this profound capacity to stand in nature as an observer. And so what I want to ask is about standing in nature as a participant. And I'll, I'll share just a couple of stories with you. I was out backpacking this summer one day, or went, went like a three-day period out in the, in the wild, doing this kind of fasting and solitude that's part of the ancient paths, stuff that we do here at the church I lead in Seattle. So I was alone up high in the Cascade Mountains by a mountain lake, and when I was breaking my fast, I was I was eating a can of sardines and a power bar. So this is my breakfast, right? And this squirrel <laughs> comes and joins me, and he's got a nut and he's eating. And he's so he's we're we're literally making eye contact, and he's he's eating his nut, and then he leaves, gets another nut, comes back, and <laughs> eats with me, and we literally shared a meal together. This this squirrel, and then and then when he when I was done eating, he or she was was done eating, and went on with the work of gathering nuts and storing them. And I watched, I watched this little squirrel for a little while. It was this kind of to use Martin Buber. It was this I thou relationship, right? And the same thing has happened with my wife and I with trees. There's a particular hemlock tree on the Cascade route where my wife leads snowshoe trips that's 700 years old. And I've never watched her go past this tree without stopping and hugging it and saying a word to the tree. And at first, I I kind of felt like she was being a little too mystical and a little over the top. But now I, I, this resonates with me that we're not just observers of creation, but that we're we're embedded in the narrative in some way. And the more we can become participants, the richer our soul will be. Can you kind of speak to that as well? Yeah, that's so beautiful. It's it's exactly true. We're not participants is even a little too distant of a, a word. These creatures are part of the same body of Christ in the world that we're part of. It's We're all connected. And boy, has COVID taught us that, right? I mean, it came, the virus came to us via pangolins and bats from China. That's, of course, the drastic example, the dire example. But in many healthful ways, too, we are connected to all of these creatures. And if we'll just allow them, they want to be connected to us as well. All creation groans in this one great act of giving birth. The creation knows that we are their caretakers and that we can destroy them as well. And they want connection with us. If we will only allow ourselves to be connected to the rest of our body, the rest of creation. So I wonder how this experience of yours has informed creation stewardship for you or uh, for your family? Has, has this changed the way you consume or mm-hmm. uh, relate to the environment? Yeah, I think of it as not stewardship so much, which still puts me in a too much of an object relationship with the creation, but I think of it as kinship, as taking care of my family. That was all beginning even before I wrote All Creation Waits, but it really went up a notch, I will tell you, when I wrote my second book, Wild Hope. 
That's a book for Lent about the creatures we're apt to lose from this planet because of the ways we live, our transportation choices, our housing, our food and clothing choices. And I saw how my habits, even though I thought I was careful, I saw how my habits of body, mind, and spirit were destroying the creation for the creatures that I think are magnificent, like the Sumatran orangutan, because 50% of the products on the grocery store shelves have palm oil, and palm oil is taken from rainforests, the only rainforest where these orangutans live, now being clear-cut, so we can have more cookies and ice cream with palm oil in them. So after writing that book, I became a vegan, and I I pay very careful attention to what I buy, where the raw materials come from, how they're transported. There are no pure choices in this world. I don't want to make myself out to be holier than thou or self-righteous, but we can all pay close attention and we'll want to, we'll want to when we come to love these creatures and we'll come to love them when we open our eyes and our hearts to them. It took me learning about the Sumatran orangutan and the incredible parenting of Sumatran orangutans to their young, which of course went straight to my mother's heart, to make me say, oh, okay, nothing with palm oil is going to get into my refrigerator if I can help it. Hmm. That's really beautiful. I want to close us out with a question kind of bringing us full circle. Gail, you talked about the early harsh winters and how for the agricultural folks relying on the land, the rhythm of the earth, the hit that that would take simultaneously on their soul as as the darkness approached. And as you were talking, I was mindful of a conversation that I had with someone who attends our church yesterday and just, uh, she's living alone in isolation, feeling very down and of course, we're headed into some of the darkest days of the year, both in real time and also just, you know, holidays looking different and, and all the things Richard mentioned at the onset. And my question to you, again, gets a bit at the practical. I'm thinking of her and and so many others, I think, in our community of listeners who probably can relate to that overwhelming sense of of loss in this moment. And given mm-hmm. your study and appreciation for kind of the rhythms of, of the earth and how God has ordained that. My question is, what would you what would you say to those folks who are in need of a bit of hope in this moment in history? And how would you encourage them? That's a hard question, Abby. Um, I think, of course, we're fortunate to live in some ways in this technological age because it allows us connection, at least virtual connection with loved ones that we miss. I won't be able to see my oldest son in North Carolina this Christmas, and that will be a grief. I'll only be able to see him on Zoom, and that will make me sad. So there are ways that we are all getting used to, to be virtually together. And just to say, it's not forever. It's a season. It will pass. We can make the most of this. But my other answer is will sound a bit more harsh, and I really don't want it to be harsh, but I think it's true. And it's probably been informed by, by my reading this fall of Thomas Merton. Mm. I think that this time is challenging us, and believers are the ones who can lead the way. We're best equipped for this. It's challenging us to enter silence 
in a way that we've not been willing to face before, to still all of our chatter, including our chatter about God, and to put away our assumptions about who we are, what we must have, who God is, what God must supply, what a good life even looks like, and go to that point that Merton called la pointe vierge, the virgin point, the stillest point within us that exists outside time and space where God communicates directly to us. That's a very difficult place to find, especially in this culture. It's a difficult place to stay, but it is a place where God becomes vibrant and radiant. We can help each other by encouraging one another to do it, but we can each only do it alone. I've been aware of how we can only do that alone even this week, I'm recovering from a knee replacement surgery. And one of the things that happens in that surgery is that champion sleepers like myself can't Mm. sleep. The pain is too much at night. And so I lie awake in hours of the night, the dark hours of the night when it's just me. And I am able to um, listen. Mm. That's all I can do. I've run out of words. That's really mm. powerful. Thank you for sharing that, Gail. I am uh, grateful for your your wisdom toward that end. And this, it, it's interesting. This in, invitation to silence and solitude that is very real, as you quoted Merton, and is is very uh, appropriate given the the COVID season in which we find ourselves. Is also to loop back the the invitation of the geography for Michigan for Seattle both high northern latitudes we have roughly the same seven and a half hours of light only the sun doesn't even shine <laughs> it's cloudy all almost all the time and it you know as a pastor I can tell you uh, December and January suicide rates go up in Seattle and depression rates go up in Seattle and it's it's very difficult I would I would close by just sharing something that happened to me 10 days ago. I uh, woke up in the morning and part of my exercise routine is uh, this time of year to put on like touring skis and ski uphill on uh, on a ski hill before it opens. And so I woke up about seven o'clock in the morning and uh, looked outside. It was just foggy and dreary and dark. And I thought, you know, th- forget it. I'm not even going to do this. And then uh, as I'm sitting there reading something prompted me to go anyway, you know? So I put my shoes on and drove over to the hill a mile from our home and started hiking uphill. Within about 200 feet of elevation gain, I realized the fog was just down in the river bottom and I was above the fog. And as soon as I got above the fog, I saw fresh snow on the trees and then I was able to watch the sunrise come up. And suddenly uh, I took a, a selfie and sent it back to my wife and she wrote in response, pure joy is on your face. And it was just from rising above the fog and realizing, oh, you know what? I can't see everything and I can't know everything, but I can know that above the fog, God is still in control and God is the blessed reconciler of all things. Colossians 1, God holds all things together. Ephesians 1, history is heading towards 
this summation of everything saturated with the glory of Christ so that I can look around at this beautiful snow and the sunrise and go, this is just a hint of glory that's yet to come. And yet then I had to ski back down into the fog and Mm -hmm. live the rest of the day uh, without any sunshine, but with a hope of knowing that there's a sunshine ahead. And this to me is a bit of the beauty of Advent, right? God invites us into this season of waiting, but it's not a despair waiting. It's a, it's a waiting and a lamenting mm-hmm. that is somehow strangely baptized with hope as well. Right. Yeah, that's the theme of the book, really. The dark is not an end, but a door, the way a new beginning comes. And the animal world knows that. Their practices of adapting to the dark are the way they prepare for life on the other side. There's a Frederick Buchner quote, Gail, that you you may have heard of, but he's a he's a Presbyterian theologian, and he says, "Before the good news is good news, it's hard news." And I I I think <laughs> yes. that's so hard for us, especially as American evangelicals, because we just want access and we want it fast. And and I should say I, not we. <laughs> I want it today. And and there's something so as you're speaking there's something so poignant and true and and it's like i almost don't want to hear it because i i know the darkness is hard and yet it's it lands because it's not a easy answer but it it can hold the weight of this moment i guess is how is how i would describe it so thank you so much <laughs> for those words just personally i they spoke to me this morning in a way that felt very aligned and and graceful Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, I'll just echo that, uh, Gail, and, and thank you for your time. And uh, I I think I could speak for Abby here and say, if it were possible, we would love to just have you over for dinner and all of us with our spouses chatting about these things. We could talk for hours because what you've been saying so resonated Mm -hmm. with us. So thank you. I hope we can have you back during Lent to talk about your Lent book. And uh, we will look forward to that if you're willing to. I'm going to go buy right now before it sells out. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great, Gail, but thank you for your time today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. You two are great conversation partners. Thank you. And uh, this has been uh, another another time on the Toward Wholeness podcast. It's been a delight to have you with us. And may you wait well in Advent. And we look forward to seeing you again next time. Thank you very much. We'll see you then. <laughs>